Hey, it's Alana Schreiber, and I'm a producer for Colorado Edition. Before we get started, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening and supporting us as we try to bring you all the state, local, and national stories that matter. We're only able to tell these stories because of the financial support from listeners like you. We know that not everyone can afford to take out a membership or make a one-time gift, but if you can, it makes a big difference. That's how we can keep making Colorado Edition and bring our show to new listeners across the state. You'll find more information on how to donate at KUNC.org. Thanks. Here's today's show. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we examine what happens to the buildings associated with mass shootings, what they become afterwards, and how they're remembered. It can be so strong that no amount of changing the physical setting is necessarily going to release that trauma. Plus, we take a look at the recent rise in COVID-19 case numbers and where the vaccine rollout needs to go next. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Thursday, Democrats at the State House unveiled three more gun bills they say are a direct response to last month's mass shooting at a Boulder King Supers. To give us a closer look at these bills, we're going to bring in KUNC's state capital reporter, Scott Franz. Hey, Scott. Hey, Henry. Bring us up to speed on what lawmakers have settled on. Well, I'll start with the bill that might be considered the most impactful and and might lead to the, the longer hearings here at the Capitol. It would prevent people who commit violent misdemeanors from purchasing a firearm for five years after their convictions. Judy Amabile, a Democrat from Boulder, says it could have prevented the suspect from buying the weapon he used. She also thinks it will prevent several kinds of shootings uh, in the future. Someone who has been found guilty of sexual assault, hate crimes, or child abuse shouldn't be able to get their hands on a weapon that has the capacity to end many lives in seconds. I should also mention this bill aims to close what's known as the Charleston loophole, which essentially lets people buy guns if their background checks haven't been completed within three days. Another bill would let cities pass gun laws that are stricter than what the state has on the books. One reason for this is Boulder's ban on assault weapons was actually struck down by a judge just 10 days before the shooting. Lawmakers want to change that. And finally, they want to create a new statewide office of gun violence prevention. That one appears to be part of a trend by lawmakers in recent years of creating new offices to solve problems. I'm thinking about, you know, the governor's office of saving people money on health care. Do they think a new office will actually have an impact? They do. You know, I'll I'll let Tom Sullivan, he's a Democrat who lost his son Alex in the Aurora Theater shooting, give us some more details about how they see this new office working. Most importantly, the Office of Gun Violence Prevention will leverage existing state resources by educating the public about things like ERPO, safe storage, and lost and stolen firearms. Now, ERPO is better known as a red flag law. It's the one that lets a judge temporarily take a weapon away from someone who poses a threat to themselves or others. Governor Polis thinks it's not being used as often as it could be. Just days after the shooting, lawmakers from Boulder were calling for an assault weapons ban. But it is not one of the bills lawmakers unveiled Thursday. Why is that? My guess is it's a math problem. They just don't have the votes for it. You know, that would easily become one of the most controversial measures at the Capitol this year. 
Uh, I listened in on a town hall with Boulder lawmakers last week, and they really spent a lot of time trying to manage expectations uh, about an assault weapons ban. They said time was running short in the session. Some of their fellow Democrats, like Tom Sullivan, who we just heard from, were warning them that it would, quote, blow up the Capitol and really stall some of these other reforms that they, they feel have the best chances of passing. They were asked again, why no assault weapons ban? And their latest response is that they don't feel like it would save as many lives as this kind of package of three bills that they they do think they can pass. But it was a big struggle for them. Here again is Judy Amabile talking about the thought process behind it. If it were up to me, I would I would ban assault weapons. I would I might try to get rid of the Second Amendment. I mean, I'm not um, that gun friendly. Uh, but it's not up to just us here. And um, so I really like my focus is I'm, I'm pragmatist. And I don't know that we do ourselves any favors by being other than focused on the reality on the ground. And I'll say I think this all really just reinforces something we already know about Colorado politics. Gun measures are not a sure bet here, even with Democrats in power. Remember, just a couple of years ago, Leroy Garcia, the top Democrat in the Senate, voted against the red flag gun bill that passed. You know, he represents a district in Pueblo, you know, where another Democratic lawmaker was actually recalled uh, for supporting magazine limits in the wake of the Aurora shooting. So you can see why this gets very complicated. So what do you think are the chances for the bills that are being introduced? Well, I think there's a strong chance that these are, are going to pass this session. I think it's an especially good sign, you know, that at this press conference where they were unveiled, you had people like Alec Garnett, he's the Speaker of the House, and Tom Sullivan. You know, these are two lawmakers who championed that red flag law through some tricky political waters just two years ago. It's also important to keep in mind that Democrats have a bigger majority in the Senate than they did uh, when they were working on the red flag law two years ago. So they can afford to lose a couple votes in districts where these kind of measures are a bigger political risk. I know that's a long way of saying that, yeah, I do expect these to get to the governor's desk. That's KUNC's Scott Franz. Scott, thank you, as always, for following things down at the Capitol. Hey, my pleasure, Henry. Thank you. The grocery store at the center of the shooting that left 10 people dead in Boulder is still closed. More than a month later, a memorial outside of the building still attracts mourners who leave behind flowers and heartfelt notes. While we wait for word on what comes next, KUNC's Ray Solomon looked at how other communities have moved forward with physical spaces that are associated with mass shootings. It didn't take long before Boulder officials started hearing from community leaders all over the country that have dealt with similar traumatizing events. The club in which no one wants to be a member. Frank DeAngelis was an early member of that club. Now he's retired, but he was the principal of Columbine High School in 1999. It's not that I'm an expert, but when I called and responded saying, I know what you're going through, I really did. These days, he spends a lot of time helping communities cope with loss and the prospect of recovery. He says there are a lot of questions a community needs to address as it emerges from the shadow of a mass shooting. One of those questions is what to do with the space where the event took place. I just hope that I could share some of the things that we learned in Columbine. Twelve students and a teacher were killed. 
Several were in the library, which was directly above the cafeteria. We knew we could not go back in the library, so we felt that was really hollow ground. And so they landed on a creative solution. The floor of the library was removed, opening the cafeteria into a double-height space with an atrium. So far, the Kroger company, which owns King Supers, has not released plans for the building. But if they decide to reopen that store, how do you do it? It's a deceptively complicated question, according to Ken Foote, a University of Connecticut geographer who studies sites of trauma. He says horrific events can fundamentally interfere with our attachment to a particular place. Maybe it erases it altogether or it modifies it so that people develop uh, in sometimes a, a sense of foreboding or fear or a sense of haunting. Foote has a framework for thinking about what happens to sites like these. Some become sanctified, almost sacred, and they can't return to normal use. At the other end of the scale, I call it obliteration, where people find the events so shocking and shameful that they try and scour the landscape. That's what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. That building was completely demolished after the 2012 shooting. But some places, he said, simply need to be marked to acknowledge what happened there. Based on his research, Foote thinks that's what's likely to happen in Boulder. And if that's the case, the company has a lot to consider. You have this stigma attached to place, and it can be so strong that no amount of changing the physical setting is necessarily going to release that trauma. This is something John McDonald knows about. One of the most important things that you're going to have to do is decide what your safety and security looks like, because it has to look different than what it was on the day that you had a tragedy. People are going to want to feel safe. But as director of security for Jeffco Public Schools, which includes Columbine, he says the tools to ensure physical safety are costly and can be at odds with efforts to enhance emotional safety. You're always managing, you know, a welcoming environment with this fortress building mentality. And, you know, how do you find that balance? And then there's the question of how people will react to the space when they come back. Melissa Reeves is a psychologist, author, and national expert on prevention and recovery from mass traumas like school shootings. Trauma triggers are real. If a space is kept to be the same and someone does have a very negative connotation of that space, and when they see it, it reminds them of that day and they could actually have some flashbacks. She says it's a good idea to remodel spaces where mass atrocities have taken place. They don't want that reminder of, of what that day exactly was like. So usually communities reconfigure the space somewhat in order for it to not serve as a trauma trigger for, for certain individuals. It's also possible to unearth trauma when it comes to building memorials. The permanent memorial for the Columbine victims was ultimately located at a park across from the school. Former principal Frank DeAngelis thinks King Super should take a similar approach. When they decide to open the store, what is that going to be? Is, are you going to have the memorial there, you know, right at that facility, which all of a sudden, as employees, when you walk in every day, if you see you know, flowers and you see posters and things of that nature, you know, it's a constant reminder of that day. But Melissa Reeves says it's not always about the exact outcomes as much as the process of getting there. Trauma can be resolved when people feel like they have a voice. What's important is that whatever decision is made about what to do with that space, that business took time to dialogue with those community members that use it the most and seek input to make an informed decision. In the end, it comes down to the individual community. Each is different. There is no one right way to move forward. And it's always a custom fit. 
And according to geographer Ken Foote, there's no need to rush that. Those processes are never fixed and they never stop. That sites can change in meaning through time. And that might be playing out in Boulder. A spokeswoman for King Supers told KUNC that the company is focused on healing and has no timeline for making a decision about what to do with the store. City leaders have no say in the matter because it's private property, but they do say they'll support King Supers as they make plans for the future. Ray Solomon, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. As we continue to move toward post-pandemic life, Colorado is still in a delicate position. More than 4 million Coloradans have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. But according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, we're seeing a mild fourth wave with COVID-19 cases on the rise and outbreaks continuing to grow in places like nursing homes and child care centers. To get a sense of where we are in this moment, we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Samet, Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Dr. Samet, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thank you, Erin. I'm wondering what the latest COVID modeling reveals about where we are right now in the pandemic. What are we doing right? What might we need to pull back on? Right. So let me talk first about sort of what reality is and just some of the numbers. We track hospitalizations closely and they have gone up over the last five or six weeks. So just by by reference, March 14th, we had, I think about 280 people in the hospital with COVID-19 across the state. That number over the last few days has gone over 600. So we've definitely seen a rise of our epidemic curve. With the modeling, we say, how fast is that rise? And then we project out to the future, what will happen if we stay where we are in terms of keeping the epidemic under control, we do better or we do worse. And I think we are not doing as well as we were, say, a couple of months ago, where the epidemic curve had been descending, descending, descending. And we were hoping that as vaccination kicked in, we would continue to see a descent. What we see now with our modeling is that the epidemic curve is going to continue to rise for a while. And, um, you know, we're not probably going to see it come back down to the low levels where we'd like to be until sort of the midsummer into uh, August. What's behind this current increase in cases? In terms of drivers, we have had the variants, of course, the B117 that's more transmissible that has now taken over the infection uh, in the state. We've had changes in policy measures that have opened things up a bit. And I think many Coloradans have thought, perhaps prematurely, we're back to 2019. We're not. So those are sort of drivers. And then, of course, we have vaccination, which is so critical right now in bringing things under control. It's so interesting that cases are rising, even as we heard from state officials Thursday that just over 38 percent of Colorado's population is now fully vaccinated. Does it feel to you kind of like a balancing act? Right now, the uh, major driver to bring the uh, pandemic to a close is getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Our estimate of people who in Colorado who are actually immune is in the, say, low 40 percent, 41, 42 percent. That's good, but we still have a ways to go. I think one other important feature of what's going on right now is that the cases, the hospitalizations, or in people less than 65. Among the older Coloradans, we're really seeing the benefits, quickly dropping hospitalization rates, 
and far fewer cases projected for the future among older Coloradans when we look at uh, young adults and uh, middle-aged people. Dr. Jonathan Samet is Dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Certainly delighted to be with you again. This Sunday is Bereaved Mother's Day, a day to honor mothers who have lost their children, sometimes even before they've had a chance to take their first breath. The Denver-based organization, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, works with those families to create portraits that commemorate their children. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick spoke with the group's CEO, Gina Harris, to find out more. Your nonprofit, Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, has provided families experiencing the death of a baby with photo portraits so they have a way to remember their child. How has the pandemic impacted the program? I was pleasantly surprised that most of the the hospitals saw our photographers as essential workers. The nurses really see that what we provide is absolutely essential to the healing journey for these families. And so we, we got the calls from the hospitals that asked, are you still coming in? So we have left that up to the individual photographers because some of them are not in situations where they should be going into a hospital, but we had been developing the medical program prior to the pandemic where we train nurses and other medical personnel to photograph the baby. And then they send those photographs to us and we gently retouch the photographs for the families. So now we have well over a thousand, probably pushing 1500 nurses that are trained and hundreds upon hundreds of sessions that have been photographed uh, since the pandemic began. So we were able to fill in that missing gap where maybe we wouldn't have enough photographers to go into the hospitals because of the pandemic. Would you mind telling me how you got involved with the program? When my husband and I were pregnant with our first son, we learned that his kidneys did not develop and that it was incompatible with life. And so our doctors said that we would probably carry him until mid 30 weeks gestation. And that's when they typically will, um, the mom will go into labor and have the baby. In that time, I had a friend tell me about now he lay me down to sleep. And at first I wasn't sure. I was a little hesitant. Is this appropriate to take a picture of my baby like this? But I went to the website. I saw how beautiful the photographs were. And I knew it was something that I wanted to do. I thought at least we'll get these photographs. If we never look at them again, at least we'll have them. Now I have them hanging up everywhere and they are my most prized possession. So I know for the families that receive these photographs, it is so healing for their journey. I see that many of your volunteer photographers also have personal experience with this situation. I can imagine it's very hard for both the photographer and the families during those moments. Can you tell me how you work with photographers to handle these situations? So once somebody is a photographer with us, they've already been vetted where we look at their photography skills to make sure they'll be able to create beautiful images. So then the training really moves towards how you interact with the families. You don't walk in and just say, hi, how are you doing? So we help them with how to uh, interact with the families and guide them through. Every situation they walk into can be very, very different. Uh, Some families can be very, very distraught, as you can imagine. But then some, they aren't as distraught. So it just depends. Some Parents have not even held their baby yet. Some are cuddling their baby. So we really help the photographers guide them through the session. Forgive me, this is this is kind of a, a difficult question to ask, but 
how do you train photographers to handle situations where the child is in a condition that might be hard to photograph? Our photographers have walked into so many situations, so many different conditions of the babies, and we do our best to prepare them for that. Some of the babies, they look like they're sleeping and there's some that may have skin tearing and bruising and we photograph the babies, but that's where the retouching and the black and white is able to show the baby how the baby really would have looked like. So when I say we retouch, we do not change the appearance of a baby. If a baby has a cleft lip, we leave the cleft lip. So we're not changing that. It's just anything that comes along with the trauma of birth, especially like for a stillborn baby. Seeing these babies in that situation is difficult for some photographers, but a lot of our photographers will go in and know they have a job to do and know that this is so healing for the families that they just go in and do their job, just like a doctor or nurse. And we have family after family after family thanking us so much because now they have images that they feel more comfortable sharing with their families or sharing on social media. Um, While these families, of course, their baby is beautiful, regardless of what we do with the photographs. It's just something that they feel more comfortable sharing. That was Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep CEO Gina Harris speaking with KUNC arts and culture reporter Stacey Nick. To find out more about the program, you can visit this story on our website, KUNC.org. The new film Minari has won a host of awards at film festivals around the country. Most recently, it received six Oscar nominations, including a win for Yun Ya Jung for Best Supporting Actress. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the language of the film may be Korean, but it's an American film. Ever since its dazzling first feature film, Munyarangabo, in 2007, writer-director Lee Isaac Chung's understood the value of understatement. He sees the small things that echo beyond themselves, and he respects how life is incremental rather than a series of headlines. In Minari, a Korean-American family moves from California to a remote piece of land in Arkansas. It's the 1980s. Jacob Stephen Yun and his wife Monica Yuri Han, they've taken English names, are experienced chicken sexers. That work has supported them, more or less. But like many immigrants, Jacob wants more. He wants land to grow Korean vegetables for developing Korean communities in the West. With a rented truck and their own car, the family drive through miles of rolling hills in the Ozarks until they come to a field with a long brown trailer sitting on wheels. This is home, Jacob announces. The two young kids think it's fun to climb into the trailer because there are no steps. Jacob suggests they all sleep on the floor in the empty trailer as a kind of celebration. Monica sees no humor in this shell of a building. She looks devastated. In his giddy excitement, Jacob pushes aside some grass in the field to show his wife the dark brown soil. You brought us here for the color of the dirt, she asks. And so their life inches along out here with no phone and no neighbors. The changes can be imperceptible. From scene to scene, furniture appears, pictures show up on the walls, pots in the kitchen. Paul, Will Patton, is now there working with Jacob. Paul's fanatic in his religion and his optimism. Like Jesus, he walks down the road carrying a huge cross. 
But Paul's kind and loyal in ways that count. When Jacob erupts in frustration, Paul calms him. Things will work out. It's actually the picture of life as slow-moving that gives Minari quiet juice. The tornado misses the house. Jacob solves the water problem. Young son David's heart condition improves. A big event is the arrival of Monica's mother. Instead of nurturing, she's rough around the edges. David scolds her to act like a grandmother. Near the stream, she plants Minari, Korean watercress. Director Lee Isaac Chung and his film have been compared to Yasujiro Ozu, the great minimalist Japanese master. But Ozu watched how natural human events shift family life. A grandmother dies. A widower tries to convince his daughter to marry. Ozu made many of his films after World War II, so they show realignment. The subtext is a society reconfiguring itself after the war. Minari's about a family slowly growing into itself after starting fresh. There's no wartime rubble, physical or social, to climb over. And these people are immigrants, so they have drive, persistence, and imagination in ways that people already part of their societies do not have. They don't know what to make of characters like Paul or the boss at the chicken hatchery, but immigrants adapt in ways that never occur to settled Americans. Director Chung does not come to this story from nowhere. He was born and raised in Arkansas by Korean immigrant parents. Minari's not autobiographical, but it obviously comes from Chung's felt experience. It takes a sure hand to make a film based on such small movements and changes. Chung knows this world deeply enough to trust its undulations and rhythms. He said his earlier films were practice for Minari. If that's so, the training worked. Minari's a confident movie that trusts its audience to honor the experience of the characters. Even though the movie's not spectacular, even though it's simply human, which is not at all simple. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.